1: Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host Michelle Brown. Each week we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. A native of Decatur, Alabama, Cedric Bridgeforth is an ordained minister, author, educator, executive coach, consultant, and public speaker. He's written several books, including Thoughts and Prayers, 21 Days of Prayers, an individual and group process to transform your prayer life, and 2020 Leadership Lessons, Seeing Visions and Focusing on Reality. In 2021, he wrote his memoir, Alabama Grandson, A Black Gay Minister's Passage Out of Hiding As a child of the South, a gay African-American, an Air Force veteran, and ordained Methodist minister, Bridgeforth had been a master of hiding in plain sight. In 2015, when he nonchalantly acknowledged his life partner during a public Methodist gathering, all kinds of drama broke out. By the time he drove home, his Facebook page had exploded with supportive messages. Alabama grandson began as a series of letters to his maternal grandmother. Although she died in 1989, Bridgeforth has fond and profound memories of her presence, the aromas in her kitchen, and the life lessons that rolled effortlessly from her tongue, Alabama grandson intersperses the lessons taught by his grandmother but learned through the living of his life in search of meaning and purpose through service of others. Cedric, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown.
2: Well, I am happy to welcome you to Collections by Michelle Brown, and um, for you know Cedric, we had we had done this conversation. I call this take two, but um, I've learned so much about you, and you are you know you're so many pieces, but you're also you know the Alabama grandson, and. And looking at it, I was going back, and, you know, when we first met, it was about the book, you know, your latest book. Let's let's, let's be clear, your latest book. (laughs) But, uh, you know, because you've been down that path before. But I remember that one of the things, reading, is how you said that, you know, like when you were around 10, your grandmother saw something in you, and she said that one day you were going to preach.
3: Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: One day, you were going to preach. You've been through, you had lots of things happen. Do you often, you know, on moments when you've been like, hmm, well, they don't like me, you know, people are talking about me, do you hear that little echo in in, in your, the back of your head, hear her voice saying, you're going to preach.
3: Oh, definitely. Oh, definitely, because that was a uh, very early on, a, a, as I talk about in the book and have shared publicly in many settings, that was a traumatic pronouncement. You know, one day you're going to preach. Like, no, that's not what I want to do. I want to be an architect, <laughs> right? So That is oh. not what I want to do. Uh, but uh, definitely the affirmation of my grandmother and then others throughout the years uh, is, is really a driving force, right? Because it's not just something I sense or feel because oftentimes I don't, but it's the affirmation that comes from others of you said something in a particular way or what you said really touched me, challenged me, inspired me, you know, helped me to gain some clarity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's just those constant reminders throughout life to just keep, uh, keep at it, right? Whatever mm-hmm. it is, just keep at it.
2: Mm-hmm. Now you know you you're. I mean, you're so much. You're an Air Force veteran. Um, you started out in Alabama. After you got out of the service, you you, as they say, you went west, young man. Um, <laughs> were you did especially when you went into the the Air Force? Were you looking to be something other than what she had? She had already, like, touched you and said, you go preach. Did, were you looking at, like, you know, I know you said, like, being an architect, but did you say, oh, I'm going to try this, that, and the other? Maybe I'll right. preach. But I want to do this. I want to be, you know, that macho guy. I want to be that guy doing that thing. Uh,
3: no, the Air Force was actually, um, you know, just a way for me to figure life out, just figure out what was next. Uh, Because along with, you know, pronouncements of my grandmother and then others along the way about just how I carried myself, not just in church but beyond, there was always these pronouncements that, you know, not only um, are you going to be somebody, you have to be somebody and you have Mm -hmm. to do something in this this world, right? So I carried that almost like a weight more so than Mm -hmm. a badge of, of honor. It was more of a weight. And so the Air Force was a time and space for me to try to figure that out Uh, because people often ask, did you go to the Air Force to get money for college? No. Uh, Did you go in the Air Force to, you know, plan for that to be a career? No. Uh, You know, (laughs) I signed up for four years. That's all I ever intended to do. That's all I did. But it was while in there that I, you know, really had to get serious very quickly about what I wanted my life to be about. And um, of course, while I was in, I started exploring, you know, what would a call to ministry look like? And everything I saw and everything I knew was counter to who I felt I was or would be. So I continued to resist it for, you know, for quite a while, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, okay, I'm open to some sort of religious vocation, but preaching every week and being somebody's pastor you know, meaning people are going to be looking at me, expecting me to be perfect, or at least to pretend to be 24-7. Yeah, I, I want no parts of that. Uh, that was very mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, in reading, you weren't hiding. You know, you were there, but, but mm-hmm. you weren't, like, going, like, hey, I'm gay. I mean, you know, you didn't lead in with that. Like, I remember reading one point how you said that there was someone who who led into every conversation is like, well, I'm gay. And you let in, I'm Cedric. Okay, and you started to uh, to live that. And I want you to talk about the moment when everything sort of blew up. But what I I read about you, which really touched my heart too, you know, the pre-time, was when you were leaving your Santa Ana flock. And you had Mm. all these souls out there around and each one sort of told a story that you weren't living, you know, you weren't living like one life here. You were living like this full life and reaching out and having all of these parts of your life in souls and things that you celebrated and you believed in and they were all doing it. And as I was reading this one article, And you talked about how this one, how you went to touch it and it was like, you know, you needed a moment. So this one, it said this one's a little painful to talk about, so I'll put it down. I mean, and it was Mm -hmm. like, wow. He was living a full life. He loved what he was doing. But it kind of blew up. (laughs) Yeah, It, it kind of blew up, even though, like I said, you weren't hiding, you weren't doing it. There was a Facebook post. Everything went wrong. Can you talk about how that went about, and were you surprised at the backlash? How did you prepare for the backlash? You knew there was. You knew where your church felt on it. You knew there was going to be some backlash. But Mm -hmm. how did it all Mm -hmm. come out to where it was like, oh, yeah, I am gay. I haven't tried to hide it, but, yeah, now the whole world knows.
3: Yeah, and and thank you for the compassionate way in which you uh, have landed this question, um, because even in hearing you you name it, you know, it stirs up something for me even even now, you know, um, these these years later, because it's real, right? It, it's still real, and and I, on the other side of it, I can get into it a couple ways. On the other side of it, I can see. Some of the benefits of having gone through that craziness, and we can talk about that at some point, if, if you'd like. Uh, but on the front end, you know, um, I had spent 20 years, you know, uh, building a career, a voice, um, you know, my my life, um, public witness, and in you know just a couple minutes, all that came toppling down, and and it was happening in a very public way but the details of it couldn't be discussed publicly because of uh, it's a church process but it's still a litigious Mm -hmm. process and there's a lot of confidentiality around so I really couldn't talk about it uh, publicly people knew something was happening and people wanted to know but I couldn't give the details right and so the particular service that you're talking about, um, you know, with the congregation, it was my last Sunday there. And, um, i had had a great time with, with that, with those folks. Um, they had welcomed me with open arms, had allowed me to be their pastor to lead them like no other congregation had. This was uh, a place that quite honestly, I didn't want to go to when I was sent there, Mm. but Mm -hmm. when it was time to leave, I felt the pain partially because of the way I was leaving, and I felt they were getting uh, sort of the short end of the stick, right? They were being punished for something that had nothing to do with them. So I was carrying the the weight or the guilt of of that. Um, But, you know, having to um, be on public display to do that in silence when I've been a very public person, not a super vocal person, but a very public person, Uh, was probably the most um, troubling part of that for me, right? Because then I felt like I had to go into hiding. And it Mm -hmm. wasn't because of, it wasn't my choice to do so. It was just the process that made it that way. So then I felt like I was not being authentic. I felt like I was abandoning, you know, a part of myself that I had grown to love and appreciate and, and a part of me that I think others, you know, appreciated as well. And so uh, to then have to go to my not just my church family, but my biological family with my my mom and my siblings and say, hey, you know, I'm about to be done in in a very public way. And this may impact you all um, was scary, you know, and then to think at the same time, my livelihood, you know, was taken away um again 20 years of of a career just wiped away potentially wiped away uh right there uh was very scary for me um because i was presumably at the top of my game and Mm -hmm. now was very you know very suddenly and publicly you know uh, brought down if you will and um yeah 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 but i i've always tried to to Um, Now, I have a couple therapists who may take issue with what I'm about to say, but I've tried to live a rather integrated existence, right? Of course, I have my own compartmentalization just because, you know, it's how life requires you to be sometimes, right? But but as far as my public ministry and, um, you know, service was concerned, it was always very public, very involved, very engaged, uh, always had a nice cross-section of folks that I was, um, you know, supporting or supported by. And I think that was just the strength of my um, my witness. And that's what helped me to grow most over the years that I didn't segment myself off. Um, you know, I've always tried to be approachable, um, you know, a bridge builder and make sure those who were pushed aside found a way to, to the center of the conversation. And here I am, the black gay person in a denomination that says, you know, gay ain't the way to go. And, you know, race relations ain't the best in the world either, yet I had found some favor and some um, spaces to occupy that really gave me, um, you know, some platforms that I could bring others along and open doors for other people as well. And so I had great concern about where all that social capital might land as well.
2: You know, and I can see because, I mean, like they were talking about like how but um, one of the hymns is We Are the Church, and it's like, mm-hmm. I am the church, you are the church, we are the church together, which was how you were living, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. you were living that, and and like you said, and it was like, well, actually, no, we aren't the church together, you know? and <laughs> we are the church together, uh, uh um Reverend Reverend Bridgeworth. Um, No, 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 you know, and it's sort of like, but the other part about that and like I said, I've had some months to go back and to sort of uh, of dig as you had this, this experience and I could under, I mean, I think anybody would understand if like you went on a crusade to talk about the hypocrisy of the church. If you went on a if you didn't go back, if you if you wouldn't said, you know, hey, I've got this tell-all book, and they, they haven't done me wrong, and this is what happened. As recently as November of last year, I saw a video of you preaching around Thanksgiving talking about identity is essential. Mm-hmm. I mean, it mm-hmm. was like, okay, you know, talk about not only giving... Yourself grace, but showing grace to and being there. Where I mean, I, I didn't watch the whole stuff, so I watched bits and pieces of it. I was trying to get to you, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> here it was this congregation that was welcoming you. They had kids who were there, who were sitting there listening, you know, who have been a part of it. And it took you back to that I'm the church, you're the church, we're the church together. Mm-hmm. And despite mm-hmm. it all, through it all, I think it's a song that goes like through it all.
3: It is. It is.
2: It you is. know, yeah. you are there. You are saying that we are the church together. You know, it, even though, you know, you didn't, you, you didn't get derailed. You just got sort of steered to another pathway. Right? And that is just like, wow. You know, wow. You know
3: yeah Did and I think work? part of it mm-hmm. yeah i I think part of it though michelle is uh you know what what happened in the midst of that of you know all the craziness that happened in twenty sixteen <laughs> whatever uh you know, and then my stepping away from pastoral ministry, stepping away you know from the church, I never divorced my faith, right because my faith in God is what has i mean that's that's as as much a part of me as my, my name, my social security number, my blood type, my eye color. Um, And so really, you know, getting to that place of having to affirm again for myself that my ultimate faith is in God, not in an institution Mm. and not in the people who run that institution. And, and, and I just had to stay very clear about that. And even when people, you know, well-meaning people, you know, tried to support me or even, you know, inquire, you know, what's really going on. You know, that was the thing that I kept coming back to. The thing I want you to know is that I trust God. I always have. I always will. Like, that's the thing I want people to know. And and that's what keeps me out of those church hurt conversations that a lot of (laughs) LGBTQ folks, you know, are in because there's been this confluence of the people of faith, their faith, the church, and organized religion. And all of those things are very different. And I think once we unravel them, you know, we can find what's essential for us and where we are you know, on our particular journey at this time. And the thing that remained essential for me then, as well as now and even before, was my trust in God and my belief that God had created me in God's own image and that God had called me to do great work in the world and my work was to then find the pathway that best suited who I am and the times in which I live in order to do that good work.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, was, I mean I, and I think that, you know, because I can always hear like people say like, oh, visibility matters. And as I looked at all of that and it was like, you know, and, and all the other things, oh, it gets better. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the path that you had initially envisioned for yourself but you made it through you made it through it all it did get better but you're there mm-hmm. visible and i mean and there you were and the fact that you were able to at a time like you were talked about like people are talking about thanksgiving but um you 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 reached in there and said well this is why this this It's important to say right now, but, you know, how some of us are always on trial and who we are and how are we seen and how do we show up. And you were able to, all of this information that you got coming -hmm. through this pathway to bring it to this group of people. And I'm sure that there was somebody there who needed to hear that. And that's a different way of being visible, you know, you don't always yes. have to just, mm-hmm. you know, have your rainbow stole on, you know, to be visible. It's that, that message that you give. So was that sort of, do does when you get ready to go, and I thought, it, you know, hey, you know, it's not like you said, never again, pulpit. You know, you're still showing up <laughs> in the pulpit. But do you sometimes, like, as you look at, at what you were going to preach about, and then sort of like, okay, well, wait a minute how do I expand this from being, like, the same old, same old to, like, mm-hmm. really being, like, this is what I've learned, and this is what you can learn and what we can learn together?
3: Yeah, I think it's been the same, um, you know, for me since since my early days in ministry of, you know, of pastoring, of teaching, preaching, whatever. Uh, it's been the same. It's, like, how... First of all, whatever it is I'm called to share, whether it's from a passage of scripture, it's to give a lecture, it's to lead a workshop, it's like, why does this matter, right? Like, Mm. how do we make this relevant right now uh, for the people who will gather? Because people are taking away from time with their family and their loved ones. People are coming with all kinds of uh, concerns, you know, about employment, their housing, their parents, their children you know, don't nobody like me, I need gas money, all kinds of things. Right. All of that is gathered in one space. And so the fact that people are investing time and resources in something that I am doing says to me, I need to make this matter for them, right? This is not just about what I feel I need to say or what I believe I've learned. But first and foremost, it's what makes this matter for them what makes this relevant for them right here right now while i have them whether it's for five minutes or for five hours or for five months whatever it is what can i say what type of experience can be crafted to help them see themselves in the text what and then when they walk away from this experience what can help them look in the mirror and truly have greater appreciation for what they see and who they see. And when they walk out their front door or look out their front windows, they can see greater possibilities beyond themselves. Like that's mm-hmm. where it begins and ends for me.
2: Mm-hmm. Does it feel better? More like you're really, you know, you're not like, okay, well, this is this Sunday we're supposed to do this or this is what we're supposed to talk about because, you know, for when you were in it, you know, before everything, you were, for lack of a better term, you were a company man, you know? mm-hmm. They were closing mm-hmm. affairs, mm-hmm. you know, you, you stuck with the company line, you know, you, you did all that, where now, does it feel different? Does it feel not only different for who you are, but the message that you're giving when you step into the pulpit?
3: Yeah, I think there's a. I think on the other side of the what the book has done, uh, which mm-hmm. could not have been done, the it could not have been produced the way that it was without the uh, the uh, tragedy of 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it could it couldn't like the story. It would be a totally different story without it, right? So, mm-hmm. but on the other side of that, there is this um, sense of freedom and liberation that. Though I, you know, I didn't feel like I was hiding anything, um, but I can, in all honesty, say I don't – I wasn't um, speaking from the deepest and truest places of myself either, right? And there, there is that reality now, right? And so, mm-hmm. so I think by, you know, moving to a more vocal space, you know, by writing a book and telling the whole thing as much as one can or would care to – there, there is a, a sense of freedom on the other side of it that also comes with an invitation that I extend to other people to step into that space that I don't, I'm not sure I really did with any amount of vigor before, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, how do we take the story, the real story of who we are and appreciate it, share it and uh, know that it's that story that will create the next story and the next relationship and really give us the energy and the wherewithal to face whatever challenges are coming right because i believe our narratives are unfolding to teach us something to strengthen us for something uh not just to point us towards something but to strengthen us and to uh, prepare us uh, for whatever is coming and i think this space that i'm in now uh, with greater authenticity and more intentionality uh, about it, you know, comes with that invitation for others to really get clear about your narrative, get clear about your story and who it can help and how you can share it and use that as as your own uh, vehicle of empowerment.
2: I love that. And that gives me the perfect segue into our next segment. So we're going to take a quick break. and. I'm going to talk to the author, Cedric. (laughs) We'll be right back.
0: This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and holistic healing services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com.
2: I'm back here with someone who is, you know, I started out in the beginning with he was Reverend Bridgeforth, but Cedric Bridgeforth is not only an ordained minister. I mean, this brother, this is this is my 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 brother from another mother. <laughs> He's yeah. an author, an educator, an executive coach, a consultant, a public speaker. You know, now the world got bigger in 2016. You wrote two books. One in 2017, one came out in 2017, one came out in 2018. Uh, The 2017 one was 2020 Leadership Lessons, Seeing Vision and Focusing on Realities. And in 2018, it was 21 Days of Prayers, an individual Mm -hmm. and group process to transform your prayer life. Were these writing these were these did this come out of what you had been through and what you had seen and your reflections on this you know leadership of seeing vision and focusing on realities you know i mean you gotta you gotta reality slap <laughs> you know and, and and then the 21 days of prayer because i mean like you said some people you know, the ones who are, have a church, you know, I'm not praying, you know, I prayed and I did all this right and everything went wrong. 21 days of prayer, an individual and group process to transform your prayer life. How were these two books influenced by your path?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that question. The, the first one, the uh, 2020 leadership lesson actually, came out of an earlier uh, devotional book that I had written on um, titled Thoughts and Prayers. And I think that was probably 2012, 2013, back, way back. Um, and I started doing some consulting along the way with uh, nonprofits, with uh, executives, pastors, congregations. And I just started tracking uh, things that I was learning in that work, uh, with working with these leaders and these leadership bodies and um, a friend of mine uh, said to me, you know, you need to publish these. Uh, people can learn from this. Uh, and I said, well, I don't know if anybody's really interested in that. And she <laughs> said, well, you're not really working right now, so you have time, <laughs> you know. Which, <so, laughs>
2: you, you know,
3: <laughs> she didn't have to say that hurtful truth, you know, <laughs> but she said it. And uh, so I said, okay, you know. And I sat down and I, I you know, pulled all my notes together and, and started crafting it, and it, it became the – the uh, 2020 leadership lessons, Um, and that opened um, a world – opened the door really to more people knowing about my consulting work, and that started to fill the void, right, of my people engagement, gave me another platform, a more – you know, uh, a different platform to do my ministry and to work with folks, and so uh, this little encouragement went a long way. Uh, so to speak, and so, um, so yeah, it, it, the timing was perfect uh, for it, and it, like I said, it opened the door to other people, people I didn't know, uh, people who didn't know I was doing consulting work, and so, and coaching, so it opened those doors, and then the prayer um, piece grew out of that work with pastors and congregations, because uh, folks were stressed out long before COVID, uh, people were trying to figure out how do we recenter ourselves, how do we, um, you know, regain some of that fervor that may have been lost because pastors lose it, uh, laity lose it, you know, regular everyday folk lose it, um, you know, just in the, in the being and the doing of life. And that same friend, you know, said, you know, um, every time you pray for me, it just makes a difference. And I've heard you Mm -hmm. talk about in the different churches you serve, how you always began each assignment with a time of prayer with the congregation. And she's like, you know, that could probably be a resource that people could use. And I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of busy right now. And again, she's like, you ain't that busy, you know? So I was (laughs) like, true. So again, she didn't have to speak that hurtful truth. Uh, She's my sister these days. She's my sister. God bless her. But, um, and so listening to that encouragement, it's like, okay, let's, let's do this. And so I, you know, sat down and created it. And these, these were actual prayers that I prayed, you know, that I pray. And, um, you know, and it's like, okay, so just create a way for people to be in prayer with someone else and then to reflect upon their own need and their own method uh, and repetition and even discipline of prayer. So that's, that's how those two came out. And so it was really the timing, uh, but definitely the, the pain and the growth of that season uh, made it possible for those two uh, resources to be created.
2: Now, in 2020 Leadership Lessons, I noticed that you, you have a prayer and a journal space. And in that book, did you journal much?
3: I did. During the uh, time when I was not uh, actively doing anything, as my friend says, um, I did. And I've never been a real journal I'm not a daily journal person. Um, If you want me to check out of your retreat or your spiritual process or your leadership program, tell me to journal every day and I'm done. No, thank you. Uh, The way I journal and the way I write is I I take blocks of time away. I take two days, three days, whatever. Like even this week, Wednesday through Friday, I'm going to San Diego just to write uh, for that time. I can't have any sort of distractions. And so that's the way I journal, uh, track my thoughts, you know, ideas, those kinds of things, really just kind of a a mental dump uh, onto the page and then see where it goes, right? So... um, But I do encourage those that I'm coaching or consulting or working with to to journal. But to do that in a way that fits who you are, that fits your rhythm, right? If you're like me and you don't want to journal every day, don't. But whenever a thought comes to you, have somewhere to jot it down. Don't assume you're going to remember it because you won't, right? So just, (laughs) just jot it down somewhere. And within the context of a book, you know, those type A personality sort of folks don't want to write in their books, right? But if you give them a space to write in the book, they'll write in that space, right? So that's why the journal space was added in there, really just track notes and thoughts, Uh, because my hope is that as people read it, this generates some some of their own creativity, their own innovation and ideation can begin. Uh, I would never want someone to read something I wrote and have that be the end of the conversation or the end of the activity. I always want want people to be inspired, challenged, encouraged to move on to their understanding, their iteration, um, you know, or adaptation of whatever's been offered.
2: Now you're talking about how, like, in 2012 you wrote thoughts and prayers. When you, do you ever, if you compare thoughts and prayers to where you are when you wrote 21 days of prayers, what has been the change, or what is what is
3: the same? Oh man, that's a really good question. Um, you know, the, the original uh, piece, thoughts and prayers, was really more about thoughts and less about less about prayer. Um, mm-hmm. And how that that whole project came about was it was a god, it was totally a god moment, totally a god moment, god thing uh, that happened. We, but the church I was serving at the time was doing this uh, forty days of purpose thing and it was one of those programs that we had purchased and decided to participate in, and, you know, it was, it was a big deal. We had a great time with it. And every day I would send out an email in the morning. I would send out an email to all the, you know, three 400 people who were participating in it. They would get an email from me every morning at 6 a.m., and, um, you know, life would go on. Well, when the 40-day experience was over, um, I stopped sending the morning emails. And then I would, you know, be at church meetings or even in the grocery store, random people, like, hey, I got to add it to your daily email. And I think I got dropped off the list because I haven't gotten a a daily (laughs) thought from you, you know. And I I just didn't have the heart to tell them, you know, it was only for 40 days. And I didn't write those. Those were provided to me. I just dropped them in the thing, you know, to send them because it's part of the program. And so then I was like, well, wait a minute. This is a need, right? Like we've created a, a need and now there's a vacuum. So then I started the practice of every morning just getting up at uh, 545. I'd roll out of bed, and whatever I was thinking about, I'd write a little thought about it with a little sentence prayer and send it out to that group, and that group grew uh, over time. And then people started requesting, hey, um, I wanted to send my sister the thought you sent about, you know, the McGriddle or the thought about, you know, climbing (laughs) the mountain or about buying the tires and Uh, A friend of mine said, you know, you're going to go crazy trying to catalog these things, so why don't you just put them in book form? And that way people can buy the book and they can share it however they want to. And so that's how Thoughts and Prayers came about uh, back then. And um, some of those stories from Thoughts and Prayers uh, make their way into 2020 leadership uh, lessons because they are foundational uh, thoughts uh, to to some of those lessons that come out in there. But I think what's different from 2012 to 2018 is, you know, I, I had a, a a major life crisis uh, that okay. happened. And though I pray daily, though I trust God and, you know, have the faith that would move mountains, all that kind of stuff that we're told we're supposed to have, you know, when you're scared, you pray differently uh-huh. than when you think everything's all right. I don't care who you are, you know, and you know, I knew eventually everything would be okay, but it wasn't that day. You know, like every day wasn't that day when it was going to be okay. And so it did impact the depth of my prayer. It impacted, you know, the content and the intensity. Um, and so I think you can see that uh, mm-hmm. because, you know, from the thoughts and prayers, those are sentence prayers, right? There may be two long, you know, kind of long verse kind of prayers in there. There are two uh, two of those, but most are just sentence prayers. But when you get to the 21 days of prayer, I'm on my knees and I'm crying and I'm balled up in the corner and, you know, all kinds of things are going on. And some of them, just a process, some of them were recorded um, over mm. time. Like I, I recorded myself. I recorded my prayer time um, and would play it back throughout the day, you know, just so... Um, so I would be reminded, so I would stay in that space. And so some of those uh, were just uh, transcribed from from uh, audio recording.
2: Wow. Wow. You know, those three books sort of kept in line with you being a minister. I mean, they're clearly, you know, a way of educating and, and building on that. And... um you were going through all of this stuff. Okay. You were still as you were going through that stuff, you were that Alabama grandson. And besides, you know, COVID came along and you know, you weren't doing anything but going anywhere, well, anyhow. <laughs> <laughs> you know. I I, I, hear, I the hear truth. Much, you know, well, you really put yourself bare. Do you know what I mean? In Alabama, dad, mm-hmm. so, where these other things, you know, like, hey, well, you know, even though like in some of the 21 days, you were, like you said, you recorded them. Sometimes you were on your knees, you were going through this, and you were calling up prayer. But this one, this one, you know, it was so I mean that, that this is this personal. This is you. This is you telling your story. What? How did you go? And and I think that the thing that that I mean the beauty of it, which attracted me to the book immediately, when you talk about it, was the letters to your grandmother, especially that first one when you're getting ready to go there. I mean, and you know who many of us. I mean, uh, there are some people who have. it, But there's always somebody who you would wonder, you know, I should have told you. Or what would it have been if I had told you? What took you to that point to really, I mean, first of all, to tell this story, to make yourself so vulnerable. I mean, so vulnerable in doing it. But also, I could connect with that talking to your grandmother. I loved my Mm grandmother. I know my grandmother loved me. And although mm-hmm. sometimes when my mother would be just like just so through with me, and, you know, my grandmother would say, "Well, you know, it's not like she's the first one who has done it. You know, it's like you know <laughs> other people." Have, but that that conversation to say, you know, well, Granny, you know, I'm gay, mm-hmm. and I knew that that she knew people who were gay, but we didn't have that. What? made you go from these things which were, you know, they were still in your lane, to to this book that's so personal, such a love story about how you were with your grandmother. So real and open.
3: Yeah, I it's definitely something and thank you. I mean, thank you for how you set that up. I I think it's a, a couple of things. I, I think it's a function of maturity. I think it's a function of uh, comfort with uh, myself. But I think ultimately it is this sense of when I got caught up in all that drama in 2016, it was as though someone was trying to hold something over me that was not theirs to hold right? Mm. And and so this is really, I think, at its core, um, my way of ensuring that never happens again. I think it's also a way of encouraging other people to take, um, take control of your own narrative, right? Um, we were talking about the church earlier. You know, one of the songs I used to love, you know, in our praise and worship time was, you can't tell it, let me tell it, you know, (laughs) what the the Lord has done for me, right? So so nobody can tell your story better than you. And and if the story is going to be told, it it, it should be told by you. And so part of it is it's a a claiming of my own power and um, ensuring that anyone who knows me or anyone who encounters this work will leave knowing that I have nothing to be ashamed of. I have nothing mm-hmm. um, I have nothing to hide because all my bills come to my house and they get paid by <laughs> me right uh-huh. So they come with my name on them and they leave with my name on them so uh, so there's that reality, but it's this sense of it was a way to, to really buy my freedom, Michelle. and um, as free as I may have felt before, um, until I put this out, there was always this question of could it happen again? And now the answer is no.
2: Were you uh, were you afraid? Were you afraid, you know, because not just a – not afraid of what other people would say, because, you know, people are going to talk. You know, people are going to talk mm-hmm. no matter what. <laughs> you know, they've been talking, right, right. and now <laughs> they can say – and we knew it, here it is in this book. Were you afraid of what it was going to open up in you, make you feel?
3: Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think one fear was uh, being misunderstood. You know, you know there there could be a lack of clarity, right? I mean, my intention is to just tell a story and invite people into it, right? I, I wanna invite you around the fire, right? And just, just hear this story um so yeah this fear of of being misunderstood or people just latching on to you know the one salacious detail and using that to classify or identify uh or box me in in some way and even try to box me out you know um Uh there is that yeah there is that um but i and my one of the editors um uh, Ruth Mullen, God rest her soul, she was she was one who was very um, adamant that you know like with the first couple drafts she's like there's there's some holes here there's some holes you know uh, and it's like if you're gonna tell the story tell the story don't kind of tell the story you know uh-huh. if you're gonna kind of tell the story you're better off not to tell it at all um, and so I had to be you know coached prodded um, you know into a space where um, I put it out there you know even for the editorial team and their uh, compassion and understanding um, you know in the process started the work started started me on the way of being comfortable with other people having my story in their hands without me being in the room with them right Mm -hmm. and um, you know, and being able to point back to why I wrote the book in the first place, right? They kept calling me back to that and um and that that became the calling card for me, like with each rewrite, with each edit um and then even going into the, these spaces on podcasts and and um speaking publicly about uh, about this work it's 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 just being. Reminded of why, um, and that has overshadowed any of my uh, hesitation, uh, which I, which are really unfounded at this point because um, it's out there. So, whatever you're going to feel, you uh-huh. need to feel, right? So, so it's out uh-huh. there. you can't get it back. Um, and so, so, I don't really have that now. Now, it's just kind of like, okay, yeah, you want to talk about it? Let's talk about it, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and we can talk about any aspects of it, um, either things that are on the page or things that are not. I'm okay with it. But yeah, there, there was a fear of people taking it the wrong way, or, you know, turning it into something that it was never intended to be. But, You know, I, I, you know, eventually just had to let that go because I I can't control that. What I can control is, um, you know, how I react or how how I respond and how I continue to uh, issue invitation and hopefully challenge and inspire and motivate other people to live their truth, to shape their narrative, narrative and share it.
2: You know, one of the things, you know, because I'm, I'm going, I've, I've been looking at all your stuff, you know, I've had time, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's COVID, it's not like I had some place to go. I would be her. I wasn't like I had some place to go. If I had time to go to. One of the endorsements says, um, it's from Diane Donovan. She says it's a story of how family heritage passes along values and approaches to life that remain vivid, relevant, and powerful under the most challenging condition. And that resonated with me because sometimes when someone sees you and like you said, how they're not going to put you in the box, but they want to see you and they see this gay persona. And so they think something, but if you really, I have found like sometimes if I dig down into the person who I am, if you looked Mm at my family heritage, couldn't be anything other than this person. You know, mm-hmm. the gay just happens mm-hmm. to be something. I mean I could dye my hair red, but I would be the say, I, I would be a redheaded person like this. I can be a gay person like this. But there's a heritage that that passes on. That that that's there. Did you find that like at, at a certain point and you know, and there was a time when I will tell you like I ran from that heritage. Mm. You know, it's like I'm, I'm not like them. Now, I'm not like them, you know, but I am. And that's mm-hmm. something that courses through my veins. It's in my soul. It's in my spirit that makes me believe the things I am, make me be the person I am, gives me the strength that I have. Did you ever find, was it always that way for you? Did you? Did you ever try to run from being that heritage, saying, Oh, I'm going to do this and that, you know, to sometimes it can be through education, to whatever, leaving the state, not wanting to be the Alabama grandson. You know did you did you ever try to run from that heritage or deny that heritage and along this path, writing this book recognized that you are your grandmother's grandson.
3: Mhm mhm yeah almost definitely and i i it's shown up in a variety of ways throughout my life you know growing up um my parents divorced when i was 10 and prior to that we lived around my my dad's family on the family farm um and i hated you know like when people ask what do your parents do well my mom works you know at a you know General Motors factory and my dad's a farmer you know i mean so it's like mm-hmm. I don't want to be a farmer. I don't want to work in a factory, you know? So, so I just had in my head that there was just something so wrong with both of those things. Right. And then, you know, my, um, mother's side, you know, my grandparents, my grandmother was a domestic worker and helped my grandfather on the farm and my grandfather was a farmer and, you know, did all kinds of other things just to, you know, raise his family and care for them. But on both sides of the family, there were both, both, both sides of the family, were uh, deeply rooted in, you know, their faith traditions and really centered faith, you know, around everything that they did, and so, so I latched on to to that. Um, but whenever I would find myself outside of the shadows of my family, yeah, I was just like, yeah, I don't want to be, I don't want to be like these farmer people. And I that don't want to, you know, it's like, a, I don't want to work in a, you know, it's like, I don't want to do all that. But now fast forward, just, you know, it's it's uh, uh, 2022 February Black History Month. If you go into Target, uh, they have their Black History display with the T-shirts and all that. If you pick up one of those T-shirts, uh, there's a tag on there that says that uh, 20% of the fabric Used to produce his garment can't, comes from the Bridgeforth family farm in Tanner, Alabama, right? All and right. so I've bought a I've bought a whole bunch of those <laughs> and sent them to my friends and given them out. You see what I'm saying? So it's come full circle. Now the farm is cool because it's been featured in the in the New York Times and the, you know a few other magazines and publications over the years. And now you know, right? As you walk in the Target, you know there it is, right? So there there's this embracing. Of this uh, primitive and scary thing uh, that now I, I take great, great pride in because I see what it does in and for the world, and also know that in the midst of that, though the blood coursing through my veins is not Bridgeforth blood, it's the name I carry, and it is a part of my identity that I I can never you know divorce myself from.
2: Yeah, you know I'm going to Target tomorrow.
3: <laughs>
2: i'm going to target tomorrow, tomorrow and look for one in the strip, you know yeah they <laughs> you know? are there they
3: are there yeah All right,
2: so on the on the flip side when you were writing and when you when you went through this i want to say crucifixion okay you know you were being you but you had done everything to make them proud of you when you and I know that you said you knew that you had to call them, you had to tell them what this hey, it's gonna hit the fan, this is it. Did you feel the need to like be be all that? So that they would be so proud of you and then feel that you had perhaps let them down or maybe they wouldn't love you like you needed to be loved, just you know, mm. like to, to scoop you up and say, Cedric, it's okay. You're still part of the family because, you know, you had been to the mountaintop <laughs> and now here you were back down on the fire. Did you did you have that moment of, of worrying? Are they going to love me? Are they going to be ashamed of me? Are they going to. And, you know, there are some who said, mm hmm, see? <laughs> now you are back here where you belong. Did you have that moment, that fear of like, are they gonna put their arms around me? Can I go back home and be better?
3: Yeah, most definitely. You know, I I've lived in California since 1997, and had no intentions on ever you know moving back down south or to Alabama. Any no, nowhere within the sweet tea zone, you know, did I ever intend to live? But when this all happened, I'm like, wait a minute, like. I'm I don't have a job. Like I could like totally be done and have to start at square one and I don't have any family here. I, I mean I have, you know, deep friendships and all that, you know, but friendship only goes so far when, you know, you're without resources, right? So um so there was this thought in the back of my mind of shoot, I might have to go back home and uh <laughs> and 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 make all this happen. But but even prior to that, I said, you know, I need to call my um my siblings, I need to let them know what 's happening because at that point, like when it all started unfolding i didn 't know how big it was going to become i didn 't know how big the story was going to become all right uh-huh. so um, so I reached out to my brother and my sister, and I said, "Hey, I need you guys to hop on a call you know at six o'clock uh, tonight, and they both responded immediately it was like, "Yes, okay, cool, um, so we get on the The call, I, you know, explained to them as best I could in that moment, this is what has happened. Uh, In that conversation, I, you know, uh, disclosed to them my HIV status, which I had never done uh, with them before. So I had to give them that information. I told them, you know, all the wranglings that were happening within the church and the possibility of this even moving beyond uh, the church realm and into the secular press. And I did not want them to be caught off guard by this. And my brother, God bless him, you know, he said, well, first off, are you okay? And I said, right now, yes. I just want you all to know. He's like, don't worry about us. We need to know if you're okay. And my sister was the mm-hmm. same way. And then my brother, who I have for years, you know, wondered, like, how does how does he go day to day, right? Like, I don't really know how he functions, you know emotionally and otherwise, but he he said, you know, he said, now what you need to let us know is if we need to arrange our schedules so that one of us can be with you, you know, at any given time. So I can come and then she can come. Like he's volunteering my sister, right? Like, you Mm -hmm. know, one of us needs to be with you, you know, while you go through this, let us know, and we will figure out how to do that. Uh, But the thing for you to know is we will do whatever you need us to do know that we love you, mm. and um, and I'm bothered. My brother said, I'm bothered that you thought this would be a big deal. Mm. And after that conversation, Michelle, I had to reach out to both of them individually and apologize to them for um, underestimating their compassion, for underestimating and discounting the love that they have for me, and And I had to name that, you know, part of that was built on this persona, you know, that I had created, that I had it all together. Everything was good, you know, and if if there was ever an issue, I was the one to come to. I wasn't the one who would ever need Mm -hmm. support, right? I was the one who would Mm -hmm. provide support. And so that veil got ripped down. um, And that has had the effect of transforming how we communicate with one another from that point forward totally wow. transformed totally transformed it um you know and, and and you can't you can't put a price tag on that you know mm-hmm. i don't even know that there's a label for it but i can say that i i am if nothing else came of it that came of it and i'm grateful for it mm-hmm.
2: where are you in birth order
3: well i'm the middle of my mother's children um so i'm the well-adjusted it. middle child mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: i'm the middle child i knew it i knew see? it See, well, because, see, Because, as you were talking about that as being that one you know because it wasn't like wasn't the oldest i wasn't the baby but i had to be that one and doing that
3: mm-hmm.
2: were you guys close when you were coming up as kids
3: no we weren't <laughs> um We weren't, and there were all kinds of, you know, family dynamics at play. Like I said, you know, my parents divorced when when I was 10, so my brother would have been like 12 13, and when my parents divorced, me and my sister went to live with my mom, and my brother stayed with my dad, and so there was that division. But we weren't close even when we lived in the same house together, you know, for those those 10 years. And so throughout our teenage years, we just grew farther and farther apart. Um, And then, you know, I went off to the Air Force and then, you know, went back, You know, went to college and then moved to California. So I've lived out here uh, for all that time. Um, But I've I've never questioned whether or not they love me or, you know, any of that. But I haven't always been um, the most welcoming, you know, of them into my circle and into my story, um, Mm -hmm. you know, until I had to be, you know. And I've had to own that, you know. I've had to own that and recognize that, you know, that if there's any division, half of that belongs to me. Mhm.
2: Well, you know, because that's what sometimes I've had, like, a similar experience to where it was like, you know, I didn't do the Sally Field thing. God loves me. They really do. But, you know, it was just like, wow. But I also, like you said, recognized that there was a part of me that didn't let them in because maybe I didn't want to take the chance that they wouldn't be there, you know, that they mm-hmm. would, you know, and so it was like, because I know I'm, my brother once said, why didn't you tell me I'm there? You know, do you need me to come? You know, And it was like, mm-hmm. I didn't tell him because, first of all, it, to, it, to say that I wasn't perfect or superwoman. But then also, I didn't think that he would be ready to drop what he was doing and be there for me. When you said it about your brother, I mean, I mean I'm going like oh my god you know I uh, I mean I I could feel that I could feel mm-hmm, that mm-hmm, and to mm-hmm. to have them both step up and say like you know no, you know which one of us do you need he volunteered her I love <laughs> I love that part. <laughs> you know we can we can take turn what about tag to you and take care mm-hmm. of you
3: Mhm 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 mm-hmm. and I I um I appreciated it because they stepped into that space, but it reminded, Michelle, it reminded me that though we weren't close, we we were raised with the same values, right? Mm -hmm. And we, we value similar things at our core. And, you know, and the fact that we get to be present for each other is a real gift, right? We're all still alive. Um, and we we get to be present for each other um, is something that I think you know I had taken for granted that this whole experience um, you know took off off the table. Even when I you know saw that this book was actually going to move to publishable form, um, I had to get on the phone again you know and call him it was like <laughs> hey you know writing this book. You know, it's kind of deep, you know, from where it is right now. It's probably about, you know, halfway through with it or whatever and or thought I was. And so, you know, it's like, hey, you know, I, I just started this exercise and now it's turned into a manuscript and it's going to get published, right? So okay. is there any – I asked them, is there anything that you would want me to steer clear of or say in a particular way just for your own um you know, ease or benefit and both of them were I mean, kind of funny about it. But they're like, uh, don't nobody know us? Like, that's your story. Tell <laughs> however you want to.
2: <laughs> I love that. I love that. cool. Uh, <laughs> I love that. So you know, sometimes, you know. I was reading where um and I know that in some ways that, that it's true. Like, you know, my grandmother's been gone, both of my parents are gone, and they held family in a way that isn't held now. Do you know what I mean? I mean, and you mm-hmm. see it generationally, and a lot of, as in a lot of black families, those ones who held family aren't there. But what they held that the three of you saw it's still there, you know, when it hit the Mm -hmm. fan, it was like your family. And that is, that was, that's beautiful. That is truly, truly beautiful. You know?
3: Yeah. And I, I've approached since then I've approached, you know, you know, people have talked about, Oh, you know, I need to share, you know, whatever it is, you know, with my family or my coworkers or whatever, you know, it's like, I approach it the same way I've approached fundraising through the years. It's like people want to be generous. You just have to give them the opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I think people want to be gracious and compassionate. We just have to create Mm -hmm. the space and give them opportunities to do it. And I experienced that with my siblings, right? Like the Mm -hmm. opportunity presented itself, and I, I could not cheat them out of that opportunity. I mean, just think of how incomplete even this conversation would be without that piece. Mm-hmm. Right, like the conversation you and I are having right now would be woefully incomplete without the testimony that was created with the invitation uh of my my siblings coming in uh of me inviting my siblings in and them being loving and courageous enough to say yes to it. This conversation mm-hmm. would be incomplete mhm, yeah
2: I had an auntie who would say like you know and i'd She'd want to do something, he wanted to, and she'd say, "Just say thank you." And mm. it was like, "Just say thank you," because you deny someone that opportunity when you wanted to. Do, you know, sometimes you just say thank you, and I was like, "Oh, okay, <laughs> I can do that. <laughs> I guess I can do that." And and to be able to, what a gift! also, you know, and yeah, it was a, a rough time, but what a gift to your brother and sister to know that they could be there for you, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that you weren't alone. I mean, you often read about people and, and some and people go like, well, we didn't know they were going through it. Had I known they were going through it? And yeah. to be able to be there, to to be present and to say that, you know. When we talked earlier this year, at one point, no, it was before I went out there, right after we talked, I went to California to spend some time with my brother because we don't see each other that much. But we mm-hmm. had times to where we were able to talk about certain things, and he felt so good. You know, like, thanks for sharing that with me. You know, he said, I never would have known that about you. And that, uh, that's that's the great thing. After they got the book, did any of them did either of them come and say, "You know what we didn't know that you know we didn't know you liked that or we didn't know that you know that was going on that they were like really surprised about,
3: oh yeah, yeah, my sister <laughs> she was she was hilarious, you know she called um." because the book hadn't even, like, you know, shown up on Amazon yet on my side, right? It hadn't even shown that it was available. And I get this screenshot from her. was like, I have ordered my copy. I am coming home early from work tomorrow because it will be waiting for me, right? And I was like, how did you order? She's like, I've just been refreshing all day, right? So Mm -hmm. the next night she called and she was like, ooh, I'm on page whatever it was. She was like, you are a mess. And I was like, what are you talking about? She's like, i got to finish reading. I'll call you back. It's like 3.30 in the morning in Alabama. She's calling. She's like, I just finished. I just finished. She's like, "Woo, boy, you lived a life, let me tell you. So, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, so, so there were some of those moments. Um, you know, my mom was, was similar. You know, she was like, you sure you lived in the same house with me? You know, and, uh, <laughs> Like, I didn't know all this was going on in my house or under my nose, you know, all that, that sort of thing, you know. And mm-hmm, it's like, mm-hmm. Mom, you just have to look at the finished product. You know, you did a good job. Look at the finished you know? product, you know. Yeah.
2: So. Hey, I wouldn't have finished if you hadn't done a good job, you know. Okay, so, uh, exactly. Uh, so we're going to take our second break. And then I really want to talk about Alabama grandson and your grandma. So we'll be right back. And we're back here, or Cedric Bridgeworth. I'm going to read this. I thought this was this, oh, this, this touched me. Said, Dear grandma, I have some secrets I need to share with you. I'm on my way to the cemetery to spend time with you. As I do each time I return to Alabama, but this time is different now when More than three decades after your passing, we face a global pandemic, civil unrest and economic collapse. The current climate is so unlike any other. I have known that leaving anything undone seems careless. And and you say, would you appreciate who I've become? Would you accept me or would you rebuff me? You wrote that and you went there. I mean, first of all, that that just, you know, okay, I'm going to admit it. I am close to crying right now.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. That, first of all, it says about the love that you felt and you had for her. It also says that what you were, you needed from her. You needed to tell her. You needed to go and, and say these things. That letter. Okay, I told I already told you. I'm outed myself. I'm here blinking back the tears. As you wrote that letter, were you close to tears? As you went there that day looking to feel her love one more time, where were you? Where were you in your spirit?
3: Yeah, it's a it's a strange thing. Um, my, my grandmother died in uh, February of uh, '89, so mm-hmm. a long time ago. And and as I you know uh, note in the passage that you just read, each time, every time I go home to Alabama, I Make my way to the cemetery, where my grandparents and many of our uh, my, my maternal relatives are, are buried. But I, every single time I go, and every time it is bone chilling. Um, it's as though she's waiting for me there. Mm. It's uh, so though she she saw my plane fly overhead, even if it was two or three days before she saw the plane and and she made ready for my visit. Um, I always feel like I am lovingly received and I feel like it's a free space. And that could be because of where it's situated. It's out in the middle of the country in the sticks, you know, if you know anything about that. And it's flat. Um and sits between the cemetery sits between essentially two uh, very large fields and for much of the year there isn't anything planted in those fields so you can see for miles in uh, all directions and and it's just just me you know in this in this space every single time and I'm able when I'm there, it's like I'm able to relive conversations that we had. I'm able to seemingly, you know, generate new ones, you know, as crazy <laughs> as it may sound. But 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 again, I, I it's this reception that I feel, this this openness and I finally decided to lean into that openness, right? It's like if what I sense is real right, as real as it can be with a grown man in a cemetery in the middle of Oakville, Alabama, um, then have the conversation that you've never had. Mm. You know, speak some truth into the air and see where it goes. Um, I mean, that was an awareness, a deepening awareness that I had not had before. I'd never had this unction of just, you know, what would, what would she think? What would she, I don't think I'd really like, you know, I probably thought it at some point, but I never really interrogated that, that, uh, that question. Right. Um, So I think it was just the confluence of the pandemic and, you know, I'm out on these back roads in Alabama, you know, in the midst of, um, you know, all the uh, BLM, you know, protests going on around the country and, (laughs) you know, things I'd never really felt before I'm feeling, right? And then I'm, you know, uh, going to the space and, you know, where I feel probably most alive and most free. Um, I think the confluence of all that is really what opened me up uh, to really interrogate this question in a very different way and say, you know what, If, if I can share my complete unadulterated truth with this woman who I think would, you know, would have given anything for me, um, then, then that, that's time well spent. It's energy well spent, right? Um, and I, I don't know what I expected to get out of it. Um, and I committed, like, I'm just, I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna write my story. And it wasn't an expectation that it was going to be a book or any of that. It was like, I'm just going to write a series of letters to her and just Mm -hmm. explain how I got to where I am. Um, Because I wanted to understand it, you know, more, you know, in a deeper way as well, right? And it's like, but here's someone I know who loved, I know loved me, right? Loved me, loved me, loved me. Mm
0: -hmm. But what was
3: it about me that would not allow me to, receive that love in such a way that I would be completely transparent and open with her. Because I think that's played out in other relationships for me as well, right? So so the way to kind of crack that open.
2: The format of the letters, how did that come about?
3: Well, it was going to be a whole series of, I decided, like I said, I decided I was just going to write, you know, a series of letters to my grandmother, and that's all it was going to be. It was kind of my journaling exercise. It wasn't the idea that this was going to become a book that anybody else, you know, would ever read. This was just me, like this exercise I wanted to do. And I shared uh, a couple of the letters with uh, a woman who had started this meetup group. Um, Well, the meetup group is already going, and I signed up for the meetup group Uh, Little did I know, she was a publisher, and um, she reached out to me because I had failed to show up for a couple of the sessions and just wanted to get to know me, and she asked me to send a couple samples of my writing. I sent uh, two or three of these letters I had written, and she picked up the phone and called me, and and she was adamant that she's like, you've got something here. You've got something Mm -hmm. here. Um, And it was that encouragement to like, just keep writing, just keep writing. Uh, So the book, I think, ends up, you know, just shy of 300 pages. I wrote well over 500. Um, And then the letters um, were changed. Uh, We changed the letters. So after all the letters were done, it's like, just tell the stories, you know, take it out of the Mm -hmm. letter format. So second draft was not because it was going to be a series of letters. Right. And then it's like, well, nobody's going to want to read that. Um, so then it's like, just tell the stories, right? and so it's like, okay, so then I just told the stories, and then um in the edit editorial process the some of the letters were brought back in uh and framed um the beginning and end of the
2: uh mm-hmm.
3: of the book itself, you know, because they felt the concept of the letters was powerful, and because that was mm-hmm. the genesis of the whole project it it had to be uh included. Uh, but nobody really, from the beginning, nobody really knew how to include it. But it was it was Ruth, um, who was like, "Oh yeah, you know, this letter right here, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, it's like mm-hmm. like open with this is the letter, you know, this is mm-hmm. the letter, and uh, and from here just tell the story." And so that that's how yeah. it all got packaged. Mm-hmm.
2: Okay, I mean, and really, I mean, you know, and if you put on your cinematographer's hat, you, know, I mean, but if you as you can see it. It is, it's sort of like that was a perfect way to start with the letter, end with the letter, like these are the bookends and then tell the story because it's like, why does it matter? I mean, what makes this different from, you know, somebody telling their story? It's that connection that you mm-hmm. get. You know, I was mm-hmm. born and raised straight. Mm-hmm. My grandmother, you know, I mean, has been, a, but there was that connection, that feeling that you got that the letter part, yeah, it was so personal. It sort of made you think about, I had an aunt who had been, um, she took care of people's houses. She was a seamstress. She did. I mean, so it was like, it was like, there was a part in reading in the first part of of the first letter. It took you to being black, you know, Mm -hmm. we all have Mm -hmm. even though, you know, my grandmother, had taken care of other people's kids. She'd been a housekeeper and all that. So, I mean, that's part of our experience. So there's it, it a way that even if you you weren't standing in, it drew you in. And in some ways, I'd even say, opened your heart to those feelings, you know, like, you know, that you, you like, it's like, you were not my favorite person, you know, but I couldn't tell you. I understood mm-hmm. that. Mhm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. I think that that's what was how you say, I didn't trust you enough to say I'm gay. You know. You know I didn't trust enough to say that I was gay. Okay, I'd rather been considered and I think they used rebel without a clue for me, you know. I mean and I was okay <laughs> with that. I was okay with that. You know, I don't have a clue, that's right, and y'all don't have a clue what I'm up to you know. But it, that's what I think made it so personal in reading it. And from the beginning, you know, and then it was like, and if you hadn't had that uh, closed with that, I think I would have felt, you know, I was missing something. Mm-hmm. It was like that conversation that you had with your grandmother, that conversation, mm-hmm. and also that I know it's still going on.
3: Yeah, yeah, that was that, – the, the team uh, that worked with me on this was amazing. And um, I, I believe more so now than I did at the beginning that this was a project that just had to be done and had to be done in this particular way and at this time. Um, I don't think I shared this with you uh, the last time we, we spoke, but uh, one of the editors, uh, Ruth Mullen, whom I never met, like we only communicated via email, uh, throughout this whole process really was the one who pushed me beyond the brink uh, with this to go deeper you know like tell the story tell the real story you know
0: um
3: mm-hmm. uh so so she really you know pushed and then helped frame uh, the book with the letters and how to tell the stories and all that so because i i i'd never done this type of writing before this was my first sort of narrative piece ever um so I can do devotional writing, you know, I can do research writing. I'd never done this sort of narrative uh, writing before. So um, uh, so she was very helpful, you know, uh, Sarah and and Ruth, but Ruth in particular in really giving shape to the uh, how the story was told in the end. And when the book was finally published and Ruth got, you know, her printed copy, we received, uh, the team received an email from her, she got it, like, on a Friday or whatever. That Sunday we received an email from her, you know, praising the project, how it looked, and she had read it. And in her email she said something to the effect of, you know, I don't usually do this, but I'm strongly recommending that you enter some book competitions both for content Mm -hmm. and for the cover, you know, and she even gave some names of some competitions and why those, you know, and sent that off. I read that on Monday, Monday morning. She sent it on a Sunday. I read it on Monday. And that Tuesday um, evening, I sent an email to the team saying, I've read Ruth's notes and I, um, I want to take this to heart and I want us to, you know, follow suit and do what she's recommended. And the next day, the publisher reached out to all of us to let us know that on that Tuesday, Ruth had been hit by a bus and died. Oh. Oh. Right, right, right. So to think that one of the last things – that she engaged on this side of glory, as the old folks would say, was this mm-hmm. project says to me, mm-hmm. I have to do everything within my power to keep telling this story and to keep pushing it as much as possible, right? Because mm-hmm. there was something about her her last days on this earth that she engaged this process that, that speaks volumes to me. Wow. Speaks volumes oh. to me, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: And you know, I'm gonna tell you, grandma said it down and said, thank you. You know, I wanted <laughs> him to tell, you know, I mean, can't you see them up there talking about you? <laughs> mm, mm. Mm, mm, mm. You know, you mentioned um, the cover, the cover design. Is there? How did that come about?
3: Another had, interesting uh, story. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Pe- People who know me know I'm always talking about full circle moment. This is a Uh full circle moment. This cover is a full circle moment. In the midst of all that craziness that was happening in 2016, I was was called on. Of course, it had been scheduled long before, and the people who had me there didn't know all this other stuff was happening in the background. So I went to Nashville to speak at the Upper Room Chapel for their annual Black History Month um, program. I uh, and the young woman who was doing the music is uh, a young woman that I've known since I, she was probably in middle school or something when I first met her. Uh, but she was doing the music for the program, and she's a great artist. After I finished speaking, we were gathered around getting ready for lunch. She came up, she showed me her phone, and she had this image on this phone. She says, "This is what I sketched while you were speaking." Uh. And I said, "You did this on your phone?" She said, "Yes." I said. I she's like, I'll print it for you. I'll, I'll print you off a copy. She went upstairs. She brought it. She gave it to me. I stuck it in my folder. Um, and then when I was relocating, we were in the public final stages of publication, and Susan was working on the cover, and they were working with some old photos that I had given them. They were trying to figure out something to make it personable, you know, the whole nine. We had settled on the title, uh, but it's like we need something that brings this all together, and she's like, I'm just stuck. And Susan is an award-winning cover designer, right? She's like, I'm just stuck. I don't know. I don't know. I was going through uh, papers in my office because I was moving my office, and I came across this folder that said Upper Room 2016. I tossed it on the recycle pile, went to lunch, came back, and when I walked in, that it was still sitting on the pile. And I was like, what's even in this folder? And I picked it up, and the thing on top in that folder was that uh, printout of this sketch that um, that Linda had printed for me in 2016, and I had not looked at it since that day she handed it to me, and I stuck it in that folder with my notes. I took it out, chills just came over my body. I scanned it in, sent it to Susan, and Susan said, "This is great. Where did you get it? Um, you know, can we find out who the artist is?" I was like, "Yeah, I know her. I can text her. You know, you want to talk to her?" Mm-hmm. She's like, "Well, find out if she'll let us use it for the cover." I'm like I'm sure she will, so I you know text her, and she said, "Sure, if you want to, go for it um, you know, so having this come out of to be birthed out of a moment of deep pain but with great mm-hmm. creativity in this space to then be the cover for this book is another one of those full circle you know god inspired kinds of moments for me
2: mm-hmm. wow, wow,
3: yeah, because I mean, it is. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Powerful
3: in its simplicity. Mhm, mhm. And most people miss that underneath that there's a there's a layer of letters. Like you know, those are actual letters that are written because mm-hmm. uh, some mm-hmm. of them are written in longhand, and uh, they scan those under you know over this this picture. So just the heart and soul that went into the cover is is um, I I would say equal to the heart and soul that I put into the content.
2: Very much. Wow. So. wow. Wow. I mean, it, it, I mean, it, it's just like there's a strength to it. There's, you know, like I said, it's just beautiful. It's powerful, and it's simplicity.
0: Mhm.
2: Mhm.
3: You know, yeah. Yeah. Linda friend, Furtado. Linda, Linda hey, Furtado. You
2: know,
0: <laughs> um,
2: I had a friend who saw it, and when she saw it, she saw what she saw. She said it's like it made her think of our journey and that you was like just like breaking us to change, you know, they were that you were free, you know, and and she said, she said, Wow, she said, that's a black man, that's our a, a black story. Yeah, mm. I'm like, Okay. And I, and she said, and, and with the books in the background, like she was just like, Wow. But I think it's just like Everything about her is just like amazing. So mm-hmm. now that you got a you got a little free time, you can go out now and you're not stuck at home, not doing anything. Because I know someone has a project for you, but she can't say that. She can't say that anymore. What are you doing these days? Besides, and how are you promoting the book?
3: Yeah, a couple of things I'm I'm doing. Um, One thing I'm doing that I'm so excited about, um, I started in September of 2019. I started training for the 2020 AIDS life cycle, the 545-mile bike ride from San Francisco to Los Angeles over seven days. Of course, it got canceled because of uh, COVID, and it didn't happen last year. So I'm back to training Mm -hmm. now for June 2022. So that's taking uh, a lot of my time just, preparing for that. And I've used my uh, training and fundraising for that to promote the book as well, uh, to tell my story. Um, And when folks have donated to it, I've given them a copy, a signed copy of the book. Um, Mm -hmm. So I've done that, but uh, continued doing the podcast circuit, uh, you know, recording two or three of those a week, which is a lot of fun because I get to talk to people that I've never met before which is very different from talking to people who know me and know parts of my story, right? So uh, so that's been good. Um, and the publicity team is working on some in-store, um, in-person events right now, trying to schedule some of those now that I'm comfortable uh, with getting out and uh, actually doing some live and in-person things. Um, so more to come. You know, the website's mm-hmm. up, alabamagrandson.com and cedricbridgeforth.com. Uh, folks can always find out information there about the book and about uh, upcoming events as well.
2: One of the things that I read that sort of tickled me, because, you know, how we talk about, like, what did you learn about yourself? You know, what are you feeling, your strengths and everything? What tickled me to no end was the fact that you learned that you hadn't, you hadn't been born prematurely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you had grown up with this whole thing. There's this there's this story, and I'm sure you tell people and then I was going to go like, oh, <laughs> what was that like when you discovered
3: that? Oh, my goodness. I mean, in fact, you can – I just shared this with someone a couple weeks ago. Uh, you can go on YouTube and you just put in my name and put in um, – um, yeah, just put in my name in 2016, and it will come up. But there, there are two videos. One, I'm telling the story. Um, as I've always known it, about me being born premature and the doctor <laughs> telling my parents I would never go home. And then the second video is me, you know, pointing back to the story that I told in that first video. So so my mom gets the book. She reads it, you know, and um, and she read it before it was published because I gave her, you know, red, red line privileges. Anything she didn't want in there would not be there, right? So I gave her red line privileges, and she opted not to red line anything. Uh, thanks be to God for that. But uh, but she did say, she doubled back a few days later. She's like, you know, there is one thing I need to uh, clear up. <laughs> now, at this point, we've moved on. We're way down the line with publication, right? So she's mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's one thing I need to to clear up. And I was like, what is that? She says, um, you know, I've heard you say it before, and it's also in the book, uh, that you were born premature. I said, yeah. She says, um, yeah, that's not true. No, like, what do you mean that's not tr- How could that not be true? i like, what do you, and like, she's like, well, I was there, so it's not true. And I'm like, but you've heard me tell this story countless times. Why didn't you ever correct it? She's like, well, you know, you told it so well, and it really didn't matter. Uh-huh. You know, it really didn't matter. Really didn't matter. And I was like, my goodness, like, what do I do about this? Right. And uh, so, so the real story is, I was born pretty much when I was supposed to be, but I was, um, I got sick immediately, mm-hmm. and I uh, was in the hospital for uh, a few weeks, and and um, and it was in the process of that. That my parents were told that uh, I would probably expire, and um, and then of course that didn't happen because I'm here today. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, the story I was always told is premature. I heard other people tell the story. I started telling the story, and nobody ever corrected it.
2: Oh, that is so funny. That is so <laughs> funny. Yeah, that is that is really funny. You know, because isn't it how you're doing that, and you go, and when you have someone who tells you, that's not how it happened, I was like, oh, you know, what I thought, you know, that is, that is just amazing. So, you know, you've had quite the journey. You've been to a very dark time, and you survived because of who who you are and who you came from. When you're out and you're talking to people about it, when you show up on a Sunday and they ask you to to talk about, you know, to preach and, and to talk maybe later about your book, what would you say to someone who is facing a dark time and maybe about that relationship with family and getting back to your roots? What would you say to them about that?
3: Mm. Mm. yeah, that's a very thoughtful question. A couple things um, you know i would I always challenge people to you know find those those individuals in your circle that you that who know love and trust you, you know without condition uh and I think true love only comes without condition, but that's my own you know framework but to find you know that one somebody who who know who you know love and trust and where you can share your complete story unedited unapologetically and i think that being able to share that somewhere makes it uh, easier and possible for us to share it in other places and helps us to trust our narrative to trust that the narrative that we have, unless it's about you being born prematurely and nobody in your family has ever corrected the story <laughs> over 50 years. But other than that, uh, other than that, you know, you you trust the narrative because it's yours, right? And no one can um, can challenge your experience. Your experience is yours, right? How you feel about it, it's yours, and so you you can trust that. And so I think being able to claim that is important. And then, um, you know, finding that courage within oneself and even based on the experience of having that one person that, that you can trust, you know, uh, finding that, that, um, that opportunity and the courage to give people those openings to be compassionate can be scary, but the reward is, can also be great. Right. And, um, and I know my own experience, as scary as it was, like, you know, they may reject me. They may, you know, do whatever they're going to do. But on the other side of it, each time I can say that, you know, there's been great reward. You know, it's been, we'll support you. We love you. You know, how can we help? How can we be present for you? How can we be present with you? Uh, that takes courage, right? It takes courage and it takes time to get there. And, um, everybody doesn't always say yes. Everybody doesn't always say I love you, uh, but there are those people who will. And um, and I think it's just having the courage to to uh, seek out those folks and, and allow them the opportunity to be supportive and loving. Uh, but then, you know, and have that coupled with, with um, uh, support and belief in uh, your own narrative uh, is very helpful. Um, and because I think it's the only way we get to the place of just being our – our most authentic selves, it gets us to the place where we truly love ourselves. um, Because I I think it's, it's, um, uh, what would I call it? I I think it's unfair. Let's just go back to middle school. I think it's unfair to uh, hold other people accountable, or in poor regard for not loving you completely when you don't love yourself. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. So you're asking somebody else to do something. You're holding somebody else accountable, uh, or to a standard that you don't even uphold for yourself. I, I, um, I would, al- I will always challenge that way <laughs> of showing up in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, if you're not at a place of loving yourself, then what am I supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? So, so the challenge to get to get to that space of loving oneself, trusting one's narrative, finding space. Where you can truly be who you are uh without uh without abandon, I think sets the stage for us to have any sort of public existence that is aligned with with that private reality
2: wow mm. uh, well Frederick, i this is the, i hope you know uh this is the <laughs> beginning of of many conversations I hope to have with you. Um, I have one last question, you know. And, you know, and I'm mm-hmm. going tell you, I'm a little Catholic school girl, but I often tell people, you know, that there's a beauty in song, And um, I don't think that, you know, although I don't go to Catholic church, you know, that there's things. And as I was listening to you talk, I thought of the song that I had heard. Because actually my mother was Methodist, okay. And... And I'm wondering if you would say, you know, there's a song that says, it is well with my soul. It is well. Mm-hmm. Would you mm-hmm. say that looking back at all the ups and downs, 2016, everything, where you are now, would you say that, that it is well with your
3: soul? Oh, most definitely. Yeah, it is well when peace like a river. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. Attend my way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is well with my soul, for sure, and and that, um, you know, coupled with my favorite hymn in the United Methodist hymnal, it's number 140, uh, Great is Thy Faithfulness, right? Because it's mm-hmm. well with my soul because of God's faithfulness to me and my faithful, mm-hmm. my intention to be faithful uh, to God and to who God has called me to be.
2: Uh, well, you know what? Your grandmother... Ruth, my mama. They're all up there smiling down on us today. <laughs> They're all up there, uh, down there smiling on us. Cedric, thank you. Thank you so thank much you. for so many beautiful moments that to be able to share with you. I look forward to talking to you again, you know. And, I mean, it's been wonderful. Thank you. Yeah,
3: yeah. thank you, Michelle. Thanks for this platform, and thank you for um what I feel is, is uh, not just friendship, but kinship uh, that we've been right. able to uh, initiate and hopefully continue to build uh, through the years. And thanks for the many ways that you share who you are and invite uh, those, pe- those uh, along this journey to, uh, to come alongside as well. Thank you
1: so much for that. I want to thank my guest, the Reverend Cedric Bridgeforth. His hope is that by telling his story, Others will make connections with their motivations for living and take inventory of spaces and places where they're not being honest about who they are out of fear of rejection, ridicule, or ruin. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. Right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening.